Welcome back, Crimeaholics. It's your host, Holly. I hope everyone is having an amazing week and that you were able to tune into this week's Missing Monday. I've really enjoyed reading everyone's comments and theories on that case of Michael Chambers that I covered for Monday, and I appreciate the respectful conversations I've seen going on amongst everyone about that case. Before we dive into today's case, I do want to give a little bit of a disclaimer that right Right now here in Nevada, it is extremely windy. And if you hear a little bit of background noise, I have like a fan thing that kind of when it gets windy, it kind of makes sounds and clicks. So I apologize if you hear that in the background of this episode. I also want to give a little bit of a disclaimer on this episode because this episode deals with domestic violence relationships, sexual assault, and stalking of a victim. I know that domestic violence and sexual assault stories can be triggering for some survivors of abuse. And for those extra sensitive topics, I always want to try and give a heads up to you guys as listeners. I also would like to remind everyone of the National Domestic Violence Hotline contact number. If you or anyone you know is in need of support or help, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You are also able to text the word START. S-T-A-R-T to the number 88788. And you can check out the website, thehotline.org. I will also include all of this information in the description of this episode as well for whoever may feel like they are ready to go ahead and get help or know someone in need of help. So let's go ahead and jump into today's case, which is on the murder of Nicole Legger. Nicole Christine Legger was born on February 7, 1979 in Fort Worth, Texas to her parents Richard Cox and Deborah Hudson. She grew up in the Fort Worth, Texas area and graduated high school from Burleson High School, which I hope I pronounced that correctly. There isn't much information about Nicole's younger years, but I do know that she had a brother named Dustin and two sisters named Angela and Bree. At the age of 17, Nicole became pregnant with her son, Trey, and she raised him to the best of her ability. She did whatever she could to provide for her son, including dancing in clubs, and she also worked as a stockbroker at a place called Southwest Securities for several years. And Nicole had just been accepted into nursing school. In an interview I saw with Nicole's son, Trey, he smiled at the memories of his mom and just said how absolutely amazing she was that she was both mom and dad to him because she was a single parent and the two of them were very close. Nicole's good friend Holly described Nicole as someone who was just so big, almost that larger than life personality. She always had a bright smile on her face and she was extremely independent. 
Nicole also made friends super easily, and those who knew and loved her admired her and really looked up to her. On top of working so hard to provide for herself and her son, Nicole found time to volunteer at the Habitat for Humanity, and she also was a member of a social group called the Moms Club. Though Nicole wasn't dealt with the easiest hand being a single mom and a young single mom at that, things were on the up and up for her and she was really looking forward to her future as a nurse once she finished school. And then she met Michael Adams. Michael Adams was a successful repo man with a beautiful home in an upscale Dallas suburb called Frisco. And really quickly, Nicole was head over heels for Michael. He did things for her and treated her in a way that she had never been treated. And it was all those sweet and little gestures that I think most women dream of. Things like finding sweet little notes in her coat pockets when she left the house, random vases of flowers, and other little surprises. And that is what really seemed to have drawn Nicole in with Michael. He put her on a pedestal and treated her like an absolute queen. But her son Trey wasn't really sold on this guy. Something didn't sit well with him. And one of those things was how over the top OCD Michael was. Now, a lot of people are OCD, but Michael was literally over the top. Her son Trey recalls in a Crime Watch Daily interview that everything about Michael's home was so crazy neat. Michael owned a pool table that was located on the second story of his home, and he refused to allow anyone to actually play pool on it. So he had this brand new pool table, but never played pool on it. It was just essentially a room ornament. Also, inside of Michael's fridge, the soda cans and the condiments had to have the labels all facing perfectly so. And he even had this huge crescent-shaped couch that he refused to allow anyone to sit on. When you look at the pictures of this man's home, it looks like something that was pulled straight out of a home magazine. Every single item in his home had its own place, and everything was organized and well-kept right down to his organization inside his closet with color-coordinated clothing, which I want to say that a lot of people do this, so that's nothing crazy, but he was also meticulously organized with his gun cases. And he had those located on a shelf in his closet and he kept his firearms inside of these boxes and then the boxes were labeled and stacked and sorted by caliber of gun. Nicole was in love with Michael though and she really felt that he treated her so amazing and she was ready to take their relationship to the next step. So she moved herself and her son into his home to begin a life as a family of three. Trey recalls that it was around this time that things within the relationship between Michael and his mother began to change. 
One evening, the three were having a spaghetti dinner, which spaghetti was Nicole's absolute favorite meal. And either it was Nicole or Trey, they accidentally dripped some sauce onto the tile of the flooring. And apparently Trey had also microwaved himself an extra plate. And from the sauce heating up inside the microwave, it kind of caused some splatter. And this entire situation set Michael off into a complete rage. And this created a week-long argument between Nicole and Michael. And this became the norm inside that household, constantly fighting over little nitpicky things. Michael couldn't stand the little things that Nicole and Trey did that weren't up to his standards with his OCD. It was a constant fight about the littlest of things, but for Michael, he would completely blow up every single time. After two months living within the home, Nicole had enough. She packed herself up and Trey up, and they moved out. Instead of the relationship completely ending at that point, things took a surprising turn. Michael picked up Nicole for a date and showed up in black slacks and a black button-up shirt. He then took Nicole to a fancy dinner, and the two of them then went back to his house where Michael got down on one knee and proposed, and Nicole accepted. Her son, Trey, recalls her being really excited and giddy over the proposal, and it wasn't long before him and his mother had moved back into Michael's house. But this arrangement was also very short-lived because Michael and Nicole got into an explosive fight that left her with a fractured finger. Though I do not know what this specific fight was about, I do know that Michael was so pissed off that he grabbed Nicole's hand and forcefully ripped off her engagement ring, fracturing her finger in the process. This was the last straw for Nicole. She and Trey moved out for a second time, and at this point, the engagement was off. Nicole got an apartment for herself and her son and tried settling into a new norm for them. But while living in this apartment, weird things began happening. The first was when Nicole and Trey arrived home one evening, they found that their front door of their apartment had been left open. Both of them recalled it being closed and locked earlier in the morning when they left, and they hadn't placed any calls to maintenance to come fix anything. But what was more troubling about the door being left open was that their sweet chihuahua they had named Penelope was missing. Their only conclusion on how the door would have been left open was that Michael, who apparently had a key to the apartment for whatever reason, had come into the apartment while they were gone and let the dog out on purpose. Several days later, Trey and Nicole found their puppy dead on the side of the road because she had been hit by a car. Another time, Trey got a text from his mother while he was at school saying that she had just gotten home and found that someone had come into their apartment and poured bleach all over their clothing. 
On another occasion, Nicole was looking out the window of her apartment towards where her car was parked and spotted a red glow coming from the area her car was. So she went out into the parking lot to see what it was and found that her car had been lit on fire. Nicole suspected that Michael Adams was responsible for all of the mishaps that had happened within her life while living in that apartment, but she was so financially strapped and was unable to purchase herself a new car that she had to ask Michael for help to get a car. So Michael agreed to co-sign on a car for her. After Nicole had been driving this car for a while, she tried to get Michael to agree to take his name off the lease. She went over to his home one evening with the paperwork that was needed for him to sign, and she also went there to pick up the remaining of her belongings. And while there, Michael cooked her a spaghetti lunch. After eating most of her plate of spaghetti, she got up and began gathering her things. And this is when she started to feel a little funny and felt like the room was spinning. And quickly, whatever was happening to her at this point started to hit her really hard. What Nicole doesn't realize in this moment is that Michael had added a knockout drug to her spaghetti sauce and this was just the beginning of a whole new nightmare. At this point, Nicole is still conscious and aware of her surroundings, but she is physically unable to move her arms and legs. They were like paralyzed. She couldn't like feel them at all. She couldn't move them. She couldn't fight Michael takes Nicole into the bedroom and removes all of her clothing. While she laid naked on the bed, unable to move or fight him, Michael pulls out a very large sex toy. Nicole at this point begins pleading with Michael saying, no, please don't, but he refuses to listen to her pleas. Michael then violently assaulted Nicole with this sex toy while she remained unable to move her body or put up any kind of fight. What is absolutely tragic about this point of the story is that I was able to hear from Nicole's mouth what had happened to her because she was eventually able to go and report it. She gave a detailed statement that was recorded to the Frisco, Texas police detective, Scott Greer. In the recorded statement, Nicole goes on to tell Detective Greer that she and Michael had never used sex toys ever within the bedroom. She continues to say that at one point during this assault, Michael bends her over, puts the toy inside her, and begins taking pictures of her in this position. She says that though they had taken sexual pictures together before, it was nothing like what was happening to her in that moment. It was after this that she passes out completely, and when she finally wakes up again, she finds that her arms are bound behind her back with a rope, and a large piece of duct tape was covering her mouth stretching across one side of her face to the other. While Nicole was unconscious, Michael used her cell phone to text her son Trey saying that she was going to be staying at a friend's house that night so that he wouldn't worry where his mother was. Michael eventually untied her and she was able to run out of the home completely naked and ran to the neighbor's house where she began banging on the door and screaming for help. But he quickly caught up to her and drug her back inside the house. 
He took Nicole into the garage where he had laid out a tarp and threw her on top of it, and he handcuffed her hands together and tied her feet together. In the recorded statement, Nicole says that Michael tried to pull her hair out of her head, but then he decided that that was going to be too hard or take too long, so he just went ahead and cut it off with scissors. While she laid there alone, bounded by zip ties and handcuffs, she slowly worked to free her feet, but she was unable to free herself of the handcuffs. She realized that she wasn't going to be able to get out of there alive unless she started to play nice with Michael. When he came back to where she was, she started to talk to him, asking him questions on what his plans were going to be. She asked him if he was going to kill her, and he told her that he didn't know what he was going to do with her yet. From there, she told him that he just needed to calm down, that he was overreacting, and that the two of them could work through this and that they could go to therapy together. She also promised him that she wouldn't press charges if he let her go, and that again, they would work through their differences. When he finally let her go, she instantly went to the police to file a police report. During the interview with Detective Greer, he asks if she wants to file charges, and she is absolutely adamant that she wants to bury him, saying that if she doesn't press charges and if he doesn't go to prison, he is going to kill her and that he can't control his anger and he will without a doubt kill her. She then proceeded to ask him about how soon it was going to be that he was going to be arrested, which Detective Greer says that they still need to work through some stuff before they can do it. And in the audio statement, you can hear the worry in Nicole's voice when she hears that they can't go and arrest him right that second. She once more repeats that she knows that he's going to end up killing her. Cops were able to obtain a search warrant pretty quickly, and they found inside of his white Lexus in the trunk all of the evidence from Nicole's attack. They found the sex toy, the rope, the zip ties used to bind her, the duct tape with her hair still stuck to it, and they found the spaghetti and the jar of sauce that Michael used to drug Nicole. Michael had gathered everything from the attack and had planned to completely dispose of it all, but he was arrested before he could do so. Michael was arrested and charged with sexual assault and aggravated kidnapping, which he pled not guilty to. And this is when the system completely failed Nicole. Those charges, if he was found guilty could have meant life in prison for Michael Adams, but he was able to post bail and was let out to await his trial. Nicole was absolutely terrified to hear that Michael was going to be let out. She was absolutely terrified that he was going to hunt her down and finish what he started. She and Trey packed up their belongings and moved to a new home in Melissa, Texas, which was in a completely new county. Nicole was so worried that he would find her that the house that she ended up renting and all of its utilities were put under a friend's name. She had thought that she had covered all of her bases and that she was going to be able to lay low until the court proceedings were finished and he was behind bars. 
But one afternoon on the doorstep of her new home, she found a chilling message. On the porch laid a tarp and a set of handcuffs, which these were the same handcuffs he had used on her when he had kidnapped her. Authorities and prosecutors believed that this was Michael's way of saying, hey, guess what, I found you, and that this was meant to be a threat to her and related to what had happened to her previously. Michael did not want Nicole to testify in court, and to authorities, this was his way of telling her that she better not. Nicole and everyone else was completely stumped on how he could have tracked her down. She had done everything that she could within her power to hide where she had moved to. She lay low to the best of her ability, yet he still somehow found her. Authorities later learned that Michael had placed a tracking device on Nicole's car and was tracking her every movement from his work computer. After this disturbing porch message to Nicole, she was trying so hard to continue to be on the lookout and be cautious of her and Trey's surroundings. She would tell Trey if she's not at home, do not go outside. And if he was to see Michael at the home or within the neighborhood, he needed to immediately call 911. On September 9th, 2013, 17-year-old Trey got ready for school. Prior to leaving the house, Trey entered his mom's room where she was still lying in bed and he gave her a kiss on the forehead like he always did. And he said that he loved her and that he would see her when he got home from school. When Trey got home from school, he found that the front door was unlocked and he remembered that he had locked it that morning before he left. When he entered the home, he got an odd sense that something wasn't right. He walked upstairs where he found his mom's bedroom door closed, so he knocked on it, but he didn't get a response. He tried to open the door and found that it was locked. Trey then peeked underneath the door to see if he can see his mom in any kind of way, and that is when he saw his mom's foot hanging off the bed, so he assumed that she was still asleep. So he begins knocking a little bit harder on the door, and still no response. Trey then went to the kitchen where he grabbed a ballpoint pen and took it apart and used the ink cartridge to pick her bedroom lock. When he finally gained access into the room, he found his mother lying on the bed with her underwear around one ankle and her shirt was lifted over her chest, and she had been shot twice in the face. Everyone instantly knew who was responsible for her murder, but Michael claimed he had an alibi, which Michael had been at a Home Depot shopping and was found on security footage sometime between when the police believed that she was murdered. Also inside of the master bathroom, cops found that there were two used condoms, which with DNA testing later, it was identified that each condom belonged to a different man. So even though there is this big neon sign pointing at Michael as being involved, cops still had to investigate every possibility, and it took them six months before they finally arrested Michael Adams. The reasoning it took so long for the arrest was due to the fact that DNA evidence takes a while to be processed. The DNA inside both of the condoms did not match Michael, and again, they belonged to two different men. But authorities found that Michael's skin cell DNA was on the outside of one of those condoms. 
Authorities believed that Michael had gone into the bathroom after the murder to potentially wash his hands, and he had spotted the used condom lying on the floor next to the trash can. And Michael was so OCD that the thought of this condom lying on the floor bothered him so much so that he picked it up and put it in the trash can himself, ultimately leaving behind that skin cell DNA on the condom. During Michael's murder trial, other evidence had been presented to further incriminate him. Inside of a storage locker that he had owned, authorities found a whole arsenal of guns. And after ballistics testing was done on many of those guns, they found that one of them was the gun that fired the bullets that took Nicole's life. Prosecutor's theory on why he killed Nicole was to prevent her from testifying in that sexual assault and kidnapping case that was still pending against him. When the trial came around, Nicole's son Trey remembers being scared to be inside the courtroom and that he only briefly made eye contact with his mother's killer. The first witness was Detective Scott Greer. While on the stand, it came out that Detective Greer was doing a whole lot more than just investigating the first initial sexual assault case. After first initially interviewing Nicole and the start of his investigation into her sexual assault case, he began becoming romantically interested in Nicole. And soon the text messages and phone call exchanges were to discuss more than just her attack. The relationship between the two escalated from talking to exchanging spicy emails that were very, very sexual in nature. As well as Nicole sending Detective Greer lots of sexy nudes and topless pictures. It also came out that not only did Scott Greer have this inappropriate relationship with Nicole, but he had done it to three other women. In an interview with Crime Watch Daily, Nicole's good friend Holly says that she believes that if Scott had been more focused on serving and protecting Nicole and not focused on getting nude pictures from her, that maybe things could have been different. Because of the information that came out, the defense worked hard to discredit Scott Greer and his testimony. And though this made him look bad and potentially seem like he wasn't a very credible witness, the prosecutors on the case were confident that despite Scott Greer's shady doings, they had a solid case against Michael Adams. While in the courtroom, the jury heard the recording of Nicole telling detectives about her assault, and they also heard her repeatedly say how she knew Michael was going to kill her. After just two hours of deliberations, the jury came back with a verdict and found that Michael Adams was guilty of capital murder. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. While this is justice for Nicole, and her killer will never be outside of prison walls again, it still doesn't make things better. Her son had to grow up without his mother. She wasn't there for his high school graduation. She will never be there for his wedding day or to see him become a father. Her friends have to live life wondering if they could have done something differently to help get Nicole out of such a terrible situation. Murder hurts so many people in so many ways. 
Again, I want to remind anyone who may be in need of help or knows someone in need, you can contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline 24-7 at 1-800-799-7233 or text START to 88788 or visit thehotline.org. There's so many resources and ways to get help through this hotline, and I encourage anyone who is in need to please reach out to them. Crimeaholics, if you're not already a part of our private Facebook group, make sure you find us by searching Crimeaholics Podcast Discussion Group. In there, we share all information and pictures pertaining to the cases that we cover, and we also encourage all of our members to share all things true crime. Be sure you also follow us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. And if you would like more true crime content, you can find me on TikTok at crimeaholics.podcast. And lastly, if you'd like to follow me personally, you can find me on Instagram at crimeaholly. Crimeaholics, that is all for this week's episode. Until next time, be aware and take care. 